Attention listeners, do you ever find yourself struggling to decide what to watch on a Saturday night when you're in the mood for horror? Or perhaps you're trying to round out your own horror film education. In either case, I'm sure you'll be able to make some great discoveries in my 10x10 horror watch list, featuring a breakdown of the 10 favorite horror movies from 10 renowned horror directors. We did a deep dive of the favorite horror movies from directors including Guillermo del Toro, Ari Aster, Jordan Peele, Quentin Tarantino, James Gunn, Rob Zombie, Martin Scorsese, and many, many more. Here you'll find a collection of each director's favorite horror movies, along with quotes about what they appreciated about the films, all in an easy-to-reference PDF that you can download absolutely free. Featuring a mix of well-worn classics and deep cuts, hopefully you'll discover some overlooked gems and look at old classics through new lenses. Download the 10x10 Horror Watch List for free by visiting nicktaylor.com slash horrorguide. That's nicktaylor.com slash horrorguide. Welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Exploring and analyzing the tips, techniques, and strategies that today's horror directors use to get their movies made. Connor Boru and Ed Hartland are the writer-director duo behind When the Screaming Starts, a serial killer mockumentary that's somewhere between what we do in the shadows and Man Bites Dog. Aiden aspires to be an infamous serial killer, and when Norman, a struggling journalist, is invited to follow him on his journey to create a Manson-esque murder cult that embarks on a blood-soaked rampage, Norman's dream of becoming a renowned filmmaker may have just turned into a nightmare. With laughs and shocks in equal measure, when the screaming starts marks Connor's feature directorial debut and is streaming exclusively on Screenbox. This was a very fun interview. Connor and Ed are longtime buddies who have been working together for a while and were finally able to come together on their first feature. This is a great series of lessons on first-time feature filmmaking, balancing horror and comedy, and activating a shared mission amongst your cast and crew. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Connor Boru and Ed Hartland, creators of When the Screaming Starts. Ed, Connor, how are you guys doing today? Very well. Thank you, Nick, for having us on. Of course. Yeah. My pleasure. Well, congratulations on When the Screaming Starts. It uh, it was unexpectedly enormous amount of fun. It's kind of like Man Bites Dog meets What We Do in the Shadows. <laughs> Is that, does that sound accurate? Yeah, we've heard that one before. <laughs> okay, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> Yeah, it's. I feel like it's hard to pull off the mockumentary style. What? Um, how was the process like? Because for you guys, I mean, it felt really natural. You know, the way that it was all put together, it didn't feel forced. It wasn't like found footagey. The the overall format felt really, really natural. So I'm curious how you guys approach the mockumentary because it's tough. It's hard to do. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly. A, we've heard actually more after making the film about just how tough mockumentaries are to to land and pull off i think i went in a little bit naive to that obviously i was just inspired by the great mockumentaries i've seen like 
the office, what we do in the shadows, yeah. Spinal Tap. It was only after I realized, wow, they've got a really bad reputation in the industry. <laughs> um, it puts people off initially. People do love them, but I just think, yeah, there's there's a lot of bad ones apparently that have been made. I haven't seen many bad ones, to be honest. I, I'm just um, a fan of the genre. Yeah. So um, when Ed originally approached me with the with the idea, it was written as a mockumentary. And to be completely honest, uh, one of the main reasons we went ahead with that idea was that it felt completely achievable mm. in terms of budget. Um, the skill set that we already had as filmmakers, yeah. the people we knew, the, the locations, the resources, everything that was in the initial draft of the script, albeit it changed a lot from there. Um, it, yeah, it just felt achievable. So that's why we went with that idea. Cool. So like achievable from a coordinating and budgeting and, and scripting perspective and all of that. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, initially the budget for this film was going to be a lot, lot lower than what it ended up being. Okay. Um, and we were just going to shoot it ourselves if we had to. It was never plan A, but we knew if, if nothing else, we were going to shoot this on our own cameras, make it happen. Nice. Well, how much of it was, it, it felt very coordinated, very directed, very, it felt, you know, it did have that realism to it, but there's stunt sequences. There's a very elaborate murder scene, uh, a few. Um, I don't want to know spoilers, but um, what was the balance between sort of improv and letting the actors just kind of free flow versus just like really directing and coordinating different scenes? Well, we always had, we always had a, a scripted version of the scene. There were very few kind of moments where... Um, which which weren't scripted so we'd get the actors to kind of go through what we got written and when we were happy with that when we've got a few few kind of versions of it then we could kind of let them let them run a bit wild with it but having said that i've just thought of the one one sequence that was almost entirely worked out on the day which was the party yeah which i think for you connor ended up being one of your favorite bits but that was very that was very free yeah yeah absolutely it was um it was a real combination uh, I, we always wanted the actors to feel like they could embody the character and bring their own flair to, to the role um so yeah it was never going in completely blind and improvising maybe again aside from the party scene uh, <laughs> which we did have a very loose structure but then when we got there it was just like man just you guys have fun and we tried to shoot in a chronological order as much as possible. Okay. So at that point, I think everyone was exhausted. Everyone was tired. So I think that was just the actors really just actually blind off steam, having a good time. So it was a gotcha. lot of fun. Nice. And where did the idea come from? How can you talk about the inception of the idea and developing it into where the movie ended up? Yeah. Um, so the, the kind of initial idea for it came when I was reviewing the Ted Bundy tapes for the London Horror Society and um, kind of watching that and, and finding myself kind of equally just fascinated by what I was seeing, but also really repulsed by it because it's, it's horrendous um, and kind of starting to question, well, what does that say about me? Is that I'm finding this horrendous situation, this interesting, what does it say about society? Hmm. Um, I kind of took the, that kind of led to the, the bare bones, the idea I took that to, to Connor and we started to, to build on it and kind of snowballed from there, started looking at things like, you know, ambition, how far someone will go to achieve their goal, yeah. you know, albeit it's a slightly twisted 
kind of personal dream, um, but something that we can, you know, roughly people can relate to. Um, but that was that was the kind of bare bones idea. A few drafts of that in what 2019 or something, and then we spent a good six or eight months just refining the script. Cool. Yeah, it kind of, it, it did feel like there were statements about society's obsession with serial killers. I mean, it reminded me of natural born killers for that reason. You know, it's all about the over sensationalism. And nowadays, I mean, you can't go on Netflix without seeing some new murder series and I'm guilty. I watch them all the time. You know, I listen to the last podcast of the left, but you know, society, we, we have a real obsession with murder. Um, but yeah, it causes this sort of disturbing, almost like heroism of the serial killer, which is what natural born killers was about with very little regard for the victims, which I always thought was really, really bizarre. And it sounds like you guys are really tapping into that notion, you know, in this. Yeah, I think so. I think like we didn't want to, I mean, I really enjoy uh, true crime uh, as much as the next person. Yeah. I think we, I think everyone everyone does, and I think that's what a little a little more really than the next person for you, Ed. I think <laughs> Ed, Ed, <laughs> Ed is an avid fan. Yeah. Um, uh, thank you, thank you for that. Throwing <laughs> me under the bus. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but no, it's we we do we do really enjoy them, and uh, you know, as a society, um, but that. <laughs> That's really weird. It's really yeah. weird that we watch it and that we are that interested and are kind of binge watching series about these these horrific events. Um, and so, yeah, we we absolutely wanted to kind of play around with that and um, you know just see what it would be like if you had that kind of character who is that obsessed by kind of true crime, and they just take it that step further to you know wanting to become them. Yeah cosplaying as a serial killer yeah yeah in terms of just like um our approach to making the film that's something we really wanted to explore was this idea of in aiden's mind it's it's all fun and games you know he's not really thinking about the consequences he's he's just really into serial killers serial killer documentaries horror films video games and yeah we really wanted to create this shift where this isn't a joke. We're talking about life and death here. And obviously we never quite lose the um, the comedic feel of the film, but we certainly wanted to Im have impact and not shy away from the, the gore and the, the grim reality of, of serial killing. Yeah. Yeah. And the contrast was pretty striking where it can go from being really funny and kind of innocent to like, oh, holy shit, they're actually doing it. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think it worked really well. I mean, um, what was it like? Horror comedy is also very challenging as well. So what was your approach to balancing the screams with the laughter? That was Again, a... wasn't, wasn't, yeah, so aware of, of how, how uh, notorious the horror comedy is in the industry until we'd already made it. Um, for me, it was always just a case of, of taking each scene uh, as it, as it came up on our shoot day and I couldn't overthink it too much. Some scenes on the page appeared really dark and we, we shot them and they were quite funny and the opposite was true also. So it was always a case of just trying to maintain this, this through line where it didn't feel like it came out of nowhere. And obviously we have these moments where the, the whole film shifts. So it was trying to anticipate, okay, whereabouts are we in the story right now? Is this going to stand out like a sore thumb? And if it does, 
is it doing it in the right way a way that's gonna be true to the story and what we're trying to say not just yeah getting the tone wrong so i i think we did a lot of um toning it down on set as well like some of the jokes were just a bit too ridiculous and we realized that when we were on set and we said no this isn't going to work because we've seen what's come before this now so yeah it was a constant process of learning and adapting to what we'd already captured what the actors were bringing and ultimately just what we were trying to say gotcha this question was something that connor and i uh, kind of had conversations about debated about for for months i don't think there was a day that went past when we weren't kind of talking about how to how to get that balance right and kind of trying to walk that 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 kind of tightrope and not fall too far into one camp or the other until we really wanted to but always having a way of bringing it back no matter which side we kind of fell into yeah 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 well i mean it balances the two in a really fun way i mean i think the contrast is very shocking you know, it's it's like a shockumentary too, <laughs> as well as a mockumentary. So yeah, really well done. Um, did you tell me about your guys' background? I know Connor, you you have a background as an actor, and Ed, you've done some acting and some writing as well. And, and how do you guys know each other? How did you come together on this? Oh God, it's been a while, hasn't it, Ed? Jeez. Yeah. Like, uh, we we met at drama school, so okay. I, yeah. I had studied film previously at university. And then I actually went and did an MA in acting, which is where I met Ed, and actually where I met a lot of the cast from the film. So Norman, played by Jared Rogers, Yes in the Tour, Octavia Gilmore. These were all people that were on our course um, at ArtSed. And again, it was an acting course. There was no filmmaking, really. There was one very short unit we did, but I obviously had had a bit of a background in making short films, etc. And we just sort of formed this, this group after graduating where we thought we're going to take our careers into our own hands. I mean, obviously the acting industry is a notoriously difficult industry to say the least. So we formed this small collective and we just started making short films, plays, and we've been building towards a feature film for a long time. We just never quite found the right project. Mm. One that felt one good enough and two feasible without, you know, bringing in lots and lots of money and investors and whatnot. So when again, when Ed presented this idea, it just felt like we can actually do this and we could write with people in mind, our friends who were not only talented, but also happened to be uh, very reasonable with their rates. As, mm. And when I say reasonable, <laughs> mostly free. I mean, we don't have the strongest unions in the UK, like SAG, etc. So um, <laughs> it was a case of getting everyone we know to chip in financially as well. So they actually chipped in and were investors in the film wow so it was a real collective effort i mean and you know of course we hope the film now is going to do well we're now in a distribution phase and hopefully we all get paid on the back end from the film yeah yeah the, the cast felt like a real ensemble so i'm not surprised to hear that everybody knew each other right like the, the entire cast for the most part they all knew each other prior to this movie or a lot of them did Pretty much most of them. Yeah. I mean, we, we did fall down when we decided a really great idea was to write in a pair of identical twins into mm -hmm. the script and then realized that we didn't actually know any. Um, so we did have to slightly reach out at that point. <laughs> but, nice. But, but yeah, no, the, cast the cast all had a lot of good chemistry with each other. So yeah, I think there's some magic to casting people who know each other and, you know, a troop of actors, so to speak. So that's really cool. 
So how did the film come together after you had the idea? How were you able to like get the financing together and then ultimately get distribution? And how did, when did the rubber meet the road? Oh God. I think it was a case of going in a bit blind, which just seems to be a reoccurring theme. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah Ed, again, Ed presented this idea. It felt feasible and we were going to do it for peanuts. I mean, I think our original estimated budget was going to be around 15 grand or, or was it less? I don't know. I, I see Ed laughing. Was it less? Yeah. No, no. I think we were like, oh, we can do this for 15. We can definitely do it for 15. Um, spoiler, we couldn't. Um, <laughs> but it's like kind of saying it, it, it really was, it was a case of kind of going in slightly, slightly blind because while we'd made stuff before, we'd made short films and and, um, and plays and things like that, I, uh, a feature is such a different beast. And it, yeah. it, it's like, I think everything about this film can kind of be brought into that idea of like a snowball gathering momentum and size as it rolls down a hill. Um, because it, it kind of looking back, you kind of go, I'm not quite sure how we got from a to B to C, it just kind of happened because it, it it started rolling and we kind of had to just keep up with it um, or we'd just lose com control completely. Um, so it really was a case of setting ourselves. I think I seem to remember towards the end of 2019, we were like, we need to just put some dates in for shooting, start of 2020 and just whatever happens we start filming yeah because um, otherwise you know we'll just keep putting it off and off and off um i'm very glad we did that because you know plague right uh, yeah we timed it timed it well. <laughs> we timed it quite well um yeah we we uh we shot in january 2020 and we'd always planned to come back and shoot more we didn't have scenes that we hadn't shot necessarily but because it was a mockumentary we always knew we could you know, cut off and go to a different character's backstory and see a little bit about their lives. And we knew a couple of scenes we'd shot, we didn't quite get the way we wanted. Although they worked, we knew we could do them a lot better mm -hmm. if it was to do with the location or the weather that day or what whatnot. Um, and then, yeah, COVID happened. So we had to wait about, was it nine or 10 months before we could yeah, like reshoot scenes or add to it? I mean, in hindsight, that was one of the only blessings, at least for me, around COVID was that we got time to assemble and edit, really think about what was lacking, what could we do better. And then when the world reopened again, we could approach it, get what we needed. And we had the, the rough cut ready to go. It also allowed us to, to raise a little bit more investment because <coughs> just going back to the point earlier, it wasn't as though we thought we could do this for a certain budget and it just completely escalated out of control. It was this piece by piece step where we thought, okay, we could shoot this, on my camera or we can get our very experienced dp adrian musto to come on board but it's going to cost us a little something yeah we're gonna have to hire some more kit we're going to have to get a first ac we're going to have to get focus pulling and all this kind of stuff just escalated but it was sort of planned if if that makes sense it happened mm -hmm. very slowly i think if, if we would have gone in knowing the final budget we would have just said well we can't yeah. afford this and it wouldn't have happened and I suppose it was that thing that every uh, at every step of the way, there was always this kind of, like, you could go one of two ways. You could go, we can use what we've got, or we could improve it and just find some funds to kind of get what is going to make it a better film 
and mm-hmm. we've kind of always tried to go for that second option down the yeah. line. Yeah, what, well, when we did it, we I feel we paid the price. Locations was was a perfect example of that. So mm. um, there are certain locations which we had that could work, like it kind of would get away with it, and we filmed it, and it just it was just really lacking. An example was um, the character of Amy. She's got this really amazing gothic house that we found. Um, but initially we just shot that in my house in Camden, which is not a gothic house by any mm. means. It was very basic sort of standard house and it just, just didn't feel right. You know? Yeah. So when we did the reshoots, we found this amazing place and, and it felt like we found the real home for that character as opposed to just, just something that just was generic and a bit boring. Yeah. The house was really cool. I was going to ask, did you design that set or was that how the house looked? <laughs> I wish we did. Uh, oh, wow. It's really you know, cool. That, that, yeah, it's just a house in a place called Essex in the UK, which is not a place that has houses like that. Okay. And it, it was each room just had this completely different look and feel to it. So we got about five locations out of that house. Um, the guy had spent, it was called, what was it called, Ed? Talliston. Uh, Talliston House and Gardens. He spent like 25 years kind of creating this incredible place. And it literally was, you, you would go into one room and go, oh, this is this is a Japanese room, right? Okay, and then you move out, and it's a Gothic room. Wow. You know, I mean, it, it was finding things like that that we needed the, you know, the time that we we had to kind of step back while um, while the world was kind of shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, we wouldn't have found that place if it wasn't for that. But finding it was incredible because it just opened up so many more options for us and. We could be more ambitious with what we were wanting to to do in our kind of second block of shooting. Yeah, that was such such a good find. Nice, amazing what you can find on Airbnb. Oh, that was you found that through Airbnb. Yeah, it actually was. Yeah, they rented out one of the rooms, and it was called the haunted bedroom, and we found that. And then it was like, wow, you've actually got this sort of like yoga sanctuary. We've got a character that does a lot of yoga. Like that's perfect. You've got this wooden cabin. We've got these twins that are from. Switzerland like we could use that we could write that into the to the uh to the film somehow you know so it was a lot of reverse engineering going on but that mm. place did just feel like wow this place was designed for us and yeah of course it's just massively boosted the production values which is something we always try to do with our locations nice nice and this was your first feature right I mean I, I know you'd both done shorts in the past but this was the first your first feature yeah yeah um, we've, we've written a couple of fe- yeah we've written some features but this is the first one we've actually got made very cool and in, in terms of financing how were you able to pull the financing together as i mean what was your financial strategy if you don't as much as you'd like to talk about it so again initially it was just going to be myself ed and and jared rogers who's okay. one of the lead actors and producers um and we were going to self-finance it. I think we'd planned to do a little Indiegogo campaign or yeah. something like that, um, yeah. which never really came to be. But then the majority of the finance still came from us three, but we got a lot of our friends, family, et cetera, to invest. Nice. So it's not just a donation like with Kickstarter. It's, um, it's an actual investment. We put a minimum amount in so people, uh, you know, they weren't investing a fiver and then, asking us where their you know where their profits are um and yeah i mean again it happened quite slowly and it was like the 
there's a saying that I think it was Mark Duplass says, which is the cavalry isn't coming. Yeah. But in this very specific situation, the cavalry did actually come. <laughs> they came to our aid. It felt like that scene in Lord of the Rings when Gandalf just appears <laughs> at the top. But we had about 10 of those moments where it's like, guys, we've got no money. What are we going to do? And then suddenly someone else would say, hey, here's an extra thousand pounds. Here's an nice. extra two thousand pounds. And it just kept us going, you know. Um, I wouldn't advise doing it because <laughs> it was quite stressful. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, again, we got it done. So I don't regret it. That's great. So looking at the movie in its finished form, what would you have invested more in and what would you have invested less in? I don't necessarily mean money. It could be time, energy, effort, you know, stress, whatever. But uh, what did you overinvest in and what do you think you underinvested in? I always think you could do with more time in the script phase. I mean, that's where most of our main errors came and and not necessarily ones you see in the film. Of course, there are always going to be scenes I would do differently and things that could be better, but we shot a lot of stuff that didn't necessarily make it into the film. Um, And certain scenes were, I sort of knew they weren't as good as they could be, but they they just happen that way because of time pressures and you're trying to deal with a million different things. You've got a thousand plates spinning and it's like, okay, that scene's not quite where it needs to be, but we're shooting this other scene tomorrow. So we need to focus on that one. And this actor's just pulled out. So we need to change the whole thing. Um, so yeah, as much as possible, I would recommend always spending as much time in the scripting phase and you save yourself a lot of headache and money. Yeah. Makes sense. I completely agree with that. Um, but I suppose what I'd say as well is in terms of what I think works really well is this may not quite answer the question, but it's like that idea of you can do ambitious stuff um, for not without kind of spending the world. So like the, the costumes, for example, we, we found a, a brilliant website where we were able to source the majority of the costumes, which didn't kind of break the bank. Whereas um, we could have spent a lot more and not got that kind of stuff. So it was kind mm. of that that time spent searching around, finding these places, finding somewhere like Talliston House and Gardens, where mm. you know we're paying one amount of money, but we're getting five different locations. Um, we're kind of improving the the production value um and a similar kind of thing yeah with the the costume so those kind of times where we had time and we could find find something that just let us be ambitious without breaking the bank those were the the kind of gold nuggets for us i think yeah Yeah. so having the time to find these really special things that we're able to time time. (laughs) for everything it just comes down to time doesn't it yeah yeah I think where we've really been slightly tripped up because we've made a lot of shorts in the past and to some extent, a feature film is just a longer short film. Um, It takes a little bit more stamina and certainly it's more challenging. But I think the thing that's completely different is the next phase of of distribution and deliverables. And I know that's a boring part of the filmmaking process. Not many people love to talk about, but that's been the, the most surprising um, because you hear you hear people say like you know go and shoot a film on your phone, which I absolutely think is great advice. If you've got no other cameras that you know that are better, why not go and shoot a film on your phone? You learn, you grow. 
But in terms of actually getting the film released, there are all these different things that we're only just discovering now that we needed in certain insurances, certain uh, legal forms that just they're, they're where we're draining a lot of money yeah. that we didn't necessarily plan for. And that's been, um, yeah, that's been the biggest shock for me. And I think that's what I would advise new filmmakers to do is to put aside a certain amount of money for deliverables. And it's hard to say just how much because we've called in favors and got stuff for cheap and mm -hmm. done certain bits and pieces ourselves. I think there was one form that Ed had to do that was about 100 pages, which costs about 2,000 quid to, <laughs> wow. to have someone else do. But, you know, Ed had to give up a month of his life to do that. So. Yeah, that was... <laughs> I, I had to open that document the other day and I got a physical shudder <laughs> at the sight of it. But you know, it's, the thing it? that it's the um, CCSL, the, um, That's the, the continuity spotting list. Uh, where you just break down every single shot, what the time code is for that shot, what is the description of the shot, what dialogue is happening. Well, I, well. You watch the film frame by frame multiple times. And uh, yeah, it, it, wow. draining, but it was kind of having it done and not having to spend like £2,000 and just, you know, just my worthless time. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was worth it because, you know, it saved us. It saved us financially uh, for that. So yeah. we could spend it on other things. Yeah, that makes sense. No, I feel like that's great advice because this is like everybody thinks it's all about getting the movie financed and then made and then edited. And there's more after that. There's legal stuff. Yeah. There's all sorts of paperwork, even in pre-production, all sorts of, you know, union forms and uh, permits. And, and I feel like that is the first thing that any would-be filmmaker forgets about. So I feel like that's golden advice. Yeah. So what's next for you guys? So I've been working on a short film, which I swore I'd never do again, just uh -huh. because I was like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm in the feature game now. I'm doing features, but um, a very good friend of ours, Yes Tour, who is one of the characters, he plays Jack. He um, he approached me with this fantastic short film script based on a true story. Very, very different to when the screaming starts. It's like a hard hit and drama um, with a lot of social commentary. And um, yeah, I helped produce that and edit that and just finishing up post now um so that's that and then myself and ed have been writing away working on our next project cool yeah which is going well for the most part we have our days of banging heads on the wall but um we're getting there we've got some exciting stuff in, in the pipeline very cool well whatever it is i'm looking forward to seeing it guys it's a lot of fun huge congrats on the movie be uh before we part ways any parting advice for those aspiring filmmakers out there save money for a ccsl <laughs> Do that, the CCSL no, that, can't, that, can't, that can't be my advice. <laughs> i think i think i would say and i know it's you know the cliche but i would say make the film you can make right now if you've got a script a feature film and you believe in it and you've got, you know, not a lot of money, but you can make it work somehow. You can borrow some kit. You can get, wrangle some friends to, to help out. You can get some family to do the catering. Just make that one. Cause I've got a lot of friends who've got scripts and they're not making them because they need millions of pounds right. and no one's, no one's given them that money right now. And it's like, you know, maybe that's your second feature. Maybe that's your third feature. But right now, if you have to reverse engineer it, if you've got a cool location, if you've got some cool actors, write for them, make it work. Yeah. 
yeah i write it that was uh, all i would add to that is because there's so many people we know as well who have great ideas but they don't get them down on paper yeah get them down on paper and then get them made like kind of saying um because no one else is going to make it yeah okay great guys thank you again this was great cheers thank you cheers nick All right, here as always are some key takeaways from this conversation with Connor and Ed. Number one, make the film you can make right now. Ed and Connor have been working in film for years and were dying to make a feature together. They realized that one of the most feasible subgenres they could make a movie in, given time, money, and immediate access to resources, was a mockumentary. So that's what they made. They wrote the movie based on what they knew they'd be able to do immediately. A common pitfall for many would-be directors is writing overly elaborate, multi-million dollar scripts and putting all of your chips on those, when more often than not, directors get their start with micro-budgets. If you're a first-timer, it's unlikely you're going to get millions to make your first feature. Now, it happens, but while you're waiting on that miracle, you could be shooting something smaller and getting crucial feature experience right now. Make the movie you can make today. Number two, make it a collective effort. Ed and Connor mentioned that a lot of their cast not only worked for free, but actually invested money into the movie. This is pretty amazing and often unheard of. Connor even mentioned that unions in the UK are different from the US, but the point is still clear. They turned their movie into an asset and an opportunity for their collaborators, something they could all be proud of that shows what they're all capable of. For the actors, Connor gave them a lot of screen time and leeway to do what they wanted so the movie could act as a calling card for future projects and help their careers. This is a very business-like mindset, but it's this kind of communal, mission-driven sensibility that can enable you to take your movie a lot further. When you and your cast all stand to gain from the movie in equal measure, you will all be likely rowing in the same direction and working even harder. Of course, you've got to make it worth their while. Jason Blum typically does a great job of this as well. Number three, harness the power of momentum. Making a movie requires a debilitating amount of decisions to be made, details to be coordinated, and endless opportunities for analysis paralysis. Ed and Connor had their idea for the movie, but didn't wait for things to be perfect before they started making plans. It's critical that you start taking actions, making decisions, and scheduling dates for your projects, even if those dates are arbitrary or temporary. Once you have tangible dates and deadlines, things start to move because the movie suddenly becomes real to you and your collaborators. This was the case with Ed and Connor. Once they started putting down dates, things started to come together, and then they said the movie took on a snowball effect. Find a way to get your snowball rolling so that it gains momentum by any means necessary. You'll likely have to reschedule countless times, but just get it started and build momentum till the finish line. Anyway, guys, thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out When the Screaming Starts, streaming exclusively on Screambox. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and family on social media? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor. And on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show.